Well, happy commercialization of Human Love Day. I just want to wish you that. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's nice to be able to celebrate affection for people. I told Diane, I really was planning on flying us to the Bahamas and having a beach dinner with musicians, but COVID, so can't do that. Just, just you know, I wasn't really ever planning on doing that. I'm just trying to get the points during COVID, just to be very clear about that. When we talk about Christianity, what do we talk about? See, there's, there's a lot of branches we talk about, right? We can talk about the history of our faith and, and what it's done where and how that worked out. We can talk theology and, and even kind of parse some of the differences of the branches of the Christian family tree if we want to do that. Or we can talk about the consequences, whether personally in our lives, how it impacted and changed us, or societal consequences, how Christianity has had a, an impact on developing, redeeming, and creating cultures th throughout the world. But I think what we really need to talk about is Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, when we distill Christianity down, that's what we mean. We mean Christ. The changes in us, that's just Christ in us. The change in society, that's Christ's redemptive power. The, the history, that's how Christ has worked in the church in different cultures. Christianity is, at its core, an expression of Jesus Christ. His, his birth and life. His death and resurrection and the promise of his return and reign. That, that's what we are and should be talking about when we talk about Christianity. It, it's profound and deep enough that I, I would actually make the argument that any time we're talking about any piece of theology in our faith, any of the beliefs of our faith, we should be talking about Jesus. If, if we're talking about homardiology, the study of sin, we should be talking about the holiness of Jesus. If we're talking about the end times, save me the charts of people going up and down in pictures. Talk about Jesus' return. If we're talking about the church, we had better be talking about the body of Christ and not just ministries and titles and addresses. We, we need to talk about Jesus when we talk about Christianity. Head in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Jesus has, has gathered his disciples, the core disciples, the 12 together, and is having a private talk with them. You may have those experiences where you're on like a work retreat or you're having that family meeting that has to be had. Those things that get talked about when it's just the core of you together and you have to deal with some things. Those, those are important moments. And Jesus comes to this point with them and asks them what, what seems like a simple question that invites discussion and invites everybody in, but brings it to this point of, of precision about who he is. Here's where I want us to go today. First, we're going to talk about the question that Jesus asks of his disciples. We'll talk about Peter's answer to it and parse that out a little bit. And then we'll talk about some of the things that people have written a lot of books over, and there's a lot of discussion over that I think we need to have some clarity on of what are the rocks that Jesus talks about, what are the keys that talk he talks about, and why keep secret the things that are said here. Matthew 16, 13 through 20, I'll read this for us, then we'll pray together. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, uh, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we turn to you who created all things and has given us all things in Christ and has promised for those who have a faith in your son, a connection to you through him, the renewal of all things. So Lord, at this time, would you please help us to see Jesus? Help us to reorient our affections, our attitudes, even our focus at this time to be about Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you do not leave us alone in this, that you give your word and your spirit and the church to help us. Bless all those things that are here supporting us, that we might see Jesus more clearly now, him in whose name we now pray together. Amen. It's a pretty simple question he asks in this private moment. He's pulled everyone together quietly to speak together. And then he asks the question, who do people say that I am? It's a question that calls us to be missionaries to some extent. It's important for us to actually listen to what other people are saying about Jesus, or we won't have any answer for that question should he pose it to us. Sometimes it's easy for us to fall into the holy huddle and just want to be with, with those who are like us and think like us and agree with us, and we have no idea what the others are saying. Sometimes we, we hear the others speak, and, and we don't let them have a voice. We immediately say, well, that's not right. That's not who the Bible says Jesus is. It calls us to put our finger on the pulse of the world around us. It's really calling us to be missionaries and an expectation that missionaries will know the people around them. See, gone are the days where we can possibly think, I don't need to do this. Someone else is a missionary. We're getting back to that primitive first century Christianity where Everyone was a missionary who was carrying the truth about Jesus. We can't say, oh, the systems will just work for us. We, we can't be those who lose our courage the moment an opportunity to talk about our faith arises or are too concerned that we might upset someone if we disagree with them about matters of faith. That's gone. And he gives this great discussion question, which, which really is a great question, and, and he says to them, who do they say? And the people, the disciples, start to give some answers back. First, they say, some say that you're John the Baptist. Remember John, the first cousin of Jesus, who came and began this revival at the Jordan River in order to prepare people to receive the Messiah who was to come. He's the precursor to Messiah, and Herod has him killed. And some people are saying, we think you're John the Baptist, who was your first cousin and is dead. Well, that's a pretty fascinating comment for people to make. But what they're recognizing is there's something different about this quality and nature of Jesus. Some are saying you're Elijah. Elijah's really important to the Jewish mindset. He's seen as sort of the chief of all the prophets. And what's promised about him is that he will be the forerunner to Messiah, that, that he will return before the Messiah comes. If you've ever been at a Jewish Passover dinner, you know at the end, usually the youngest at the table will get up, open the door, and check to see if Elijah is at the door, because that would signal Messiah has come, and they'll say, well, next year in Jerusalem. 
Now, Jesus will have said already in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, if you have ears to hear, understand, John the Baptist was Elijah to come. But some people are looking at Jesus and saying, man, he must be so significant in the timeline of prophetic promise that maybe he's Elijah. We, we might be right near the end of getting to see Messiah, and some will say Jeremiah or the other prophets who have passed. Really impressive stuff for anyone near him to say about a living man. And it may seem so different for us, but you can still see the echoes of the magnetism of the man Jesus of Nazareth to this day. A huge part of the world still divides time by the birth of this one. And we'll talk about AD and BC, and I know that has shifted. I remember being at Bard College down in the Hudson Valley back in the 80s, and a new thing was being developed. It wasn't yet at the, the Catholic school I went to or the state school that I would go to later. But there, they were, they were talking about marking time with CE and BCE. And common now, I know. It's common era and before common era. And I was still just Ed Marcel and the young. So I said, um, hey, can we talk about, like, what's, what's the zero mark on this scale of common era? Well, it just is something that we have found a lot of nations in the West marked by. Okay, so what was the thing that the nations in the West were marking by? Well, you know, Christianity had its heyday. So it was the... Okay, so we're still talking the birth of Jesus. We just gave it a new overcoat, right? Yeah, let's just move on. Like, that's kind of where we were with this, right? But that, that's the impact Jesus had. And people still think amazing things about Jesus. You, you can find people who will argue that Jesus was secretly the head of the Habsburg family and the dynasties that would rule Europe, that he lived and wasn't Christian. Like, wow, you guys have done some work. You might have been high as a kite, but you guys did some work on this thing. Others will say he, he was a guru who, the years that we don't see him in the Bible, he went to India, and he learned how to slow his heart rate so it would look like he was dead when he has nails in his hands and feet and a Roman spear in his heart. It would just look like he was dead. Or I had one friend who, when I asked the question, what, what do you think about Jesus? Man, he was more than willing to talk to me about the mothership that basically beamed Jesus into Mary's tum-tum, and that when Jesus died, he, he, they beamed him back up. And I'm like, well, that, that is really fascinating also. P people are willing to talk about Jesus. It's one of the things I would encourage anyone who says, I'm, I'm afraid to talk about my faith. Because you might just be waiting for the perfect moment where someone wants to know what you believe and you have the chance just to say, here's Jesus. Why don't you try it the other way? Why don't you just ask people sometimes, what do you believe about Jesus? And don't cut them off if they're saying the wrong thing. The expectation is if they're not a Christian, they're not going to say the right thing. Let, let them speak and listen intelligently. And you might just get the moment where they say, well, what do you believe about Jesus? And you can then just start saying, hey, I believe these things and here's why. Which I did. And my friend who believed in mothership Jesus actually became a Christian because I think God got in his heart and he saw it's a lot saner to believe in the Jesus of the Bible than, than E.T. in Mary's tum-tum. Like that just wasn't his anymore and he became a Christian because of that. It's a great question to be able to include everyone. What do you believe about Jesus? But then Jesus takes that away. He'll say to the disciples, taking this breath that says everybody can play and narrowing it to the particle focus of one question like a laser beam. But who do you say that I am? Oh, man, that's very different than let's have a broad discussion on what anybody would say Jesus says. It's fun and safe to have those discussions. But when someone says, what exactly do you believe? There can be a cost to that conversation. What, what you say might actually change the way certain people behave towards you. It would have been these days for those people. 
You could have lost family by saying, I believe he's the Messiah who would turn away and you'd be done. You could face criminal charges, and they would, for saying that he was the Messiah. I don't think it's much different in our world. We've seen people who, for a point of view, are now being disempowered, right? They don't have the power of speech on the economic platforms and social media platforms. They're, they're losing power because of what's said, and it's not a far reach to be able to say someday, if Christianity isn't the popular cause du jour, you might actually pay a cost again for saying you believe these things. It may put you at odds with the country you live in and the culture you once felt was yours, no matter where you are from. And what Jesus does with that second question is he steals away the soft middle. It's no longer just a fun, dynamic discussion. There's no safe perch among the crowd just to say, I I just believe something just like everybody believes something. And in that moment, Peter answers, well, that's not a real surprise. Remember who Peter is. Peter seems to always be the first person itching to fill the silence with his answer in his heart, right? Jesus does what he does miraculously. He's calling Peter, and Peter says, depart from me. He doesn't wait to see Jesus and what Jesus is going to call him. Jesus has to say, no, 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 you're meant to come with me as a fisher of men. Peter is constantly stepping into that gap. I think it's because it's who he is. It's how he's designed. That's why we see it repeated again and again. And I suspect that design is that of a young leader. He's the one who just has the courage. He's not afraid to say it. Even when he might look foolish, he'll step up and do it. And over time, we see that. As we look later when he's an old man and writes first and second Peter especially, we think, Man, this guy is a pastoral leader. I'm glad he has spoken and has changed the way he is. But the patterns are there. And they're the patterns of discipleship. And if we want to take away all the mystical nature of discipleship and all the theology of discipleship, it's really simple. It's moving who you are, how you've been designed, what you believe and what you've experienced to being more like Jesus. That's all. That's all discipleship is. And so you're going to see common patterns. You're going to see Peter constantly bucking against that silence and needing to be the one who fills it and eventually becoming the one who is leading those things as he grows and matures. So here's a question for you. In your life, if people were watching, and I promise you somebody is watching all of your life, what would be the patterns that are there? Where you would say, yeah, this is who I am. It comes up again and again, good and bad. These are the pieces that Jesus is shaping in me because it's who I am. And he's taking me from where I am and bringing me to be more like Jesus. And when Peter speaks, he gives a great confession. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In the Greek, it is super emphatic. The thes are like capital bold T-H-E's. You are the Messiah the Son of God, comma, the living one, the living God. It's really strong that he does. And that, that, that name Christ, you are the Christ, it's not a last name for Jesus. It's a title. He's the anointed one, the promised one. If you're a reader of Hebrew scripture, this was a term pregnant with all the hope and life and deliverance that God could give your people. The anointed one all that is contained within that, all that would come to bring salvation and life to God's people, you are that one. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a statement that you are like no other man, woman, or child we have ever encountered in this world because you are not just the product of this world. You are the Son of the living God. 
And in that moment, if there was ever a chance for Jesus to correct a lack of clarity about theology that he was God, that he's just man, this is the moment. This would be the easiest one for him to go, Peter, I really appreciate the whole Messiah and Son of God thing, but I'm just Joseph's son, and I'm just doing my best to reform Judaism. That's not what he says. See, if someone told you you were God, you'd, you'd probably correct them, or you'd be a cult leader and someone else would correct you later, but you'd probably correct them then, right? That's what, that's what Paul did. He ripped his clothes when they said, we think you're God. He goes, no, there's only one God. Jesus doesn't do that here. He didn't do it for his detractors when the Pharisees said, hey, what you're saying, you're saying things that only God can do. And he goes, well, before Abraham was, I am. When angels served and humbly ministered to him as though he were God himself, he didn't stop them once. When mere mortals like Peter or you and I say, God, he never, ever stops to correct us. Leads us to this simple, profound truth that if we can reorient our hearts and minds and lives to, we'll change everything about us. He is our maker. He is the one who is the Messiah, the one who will save us. God himself come to us. Jesus makes a proclamation about how Peter knew this that's equally important. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you but my Father who is in heaven. That there's an emphasis on how this came to Peter. It deep downplays any possibility that Peter thought of it himself or someone else told him and it had the meaning to change him. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It, it debunks once and for all this notion, a formula that says information equals transformation. That if I read enough Christian stuff, if I understand enough theology, I will be with God and understand him more and more. That's not what he says. Jesus says that God himself could only reveal these great truths. And that changes this formula to revelation equals transformation. The more we see by the power of the Spirit God revealed, the more he shows us through the power of the Spirit through his word, the more we understand who he is by seeing him showing himself to us the more we become like him. Revelation equals transformation. Some of you know when God has spoken into your life with his presence, and I mean a capital T truth, you couldn't deny it. It wasn't even an option on the table. To, to understand it was the revelation of God, just you had, to, you had to somehow deal with that and square your life to it, not really fight against it. It's almost a picture of, of Paul on the Damascus Road. When Jesus reveals himself and he's blinded, Paul changes. This guy was a Bible scholar. He was trying to do right in his mind by his people, by persecuting Christians who he saw as heretics, and everything he had learned from the Hebrew Scriptures told him, I'm in the right. And then divine revelation transforms him into an itinerant missionary who would do anything and suffer anything, including stoning, shipwreck, and death, to be able to share Jesus with his people and others. Revelation equals transformation. Last thing I want to talk about, rocks, keys, secrets. Sounds like Rochambeau, but not. Uh, these are pieces that people have spilt a lot of ink over, and I want us to talk a little bit about what's going on when Jesus will say, on this rock, I'll build my church. So verse 18, he said to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter referring to the name that he gave him earlier from Simon, and on this rock, I will build my church. Three main views. 
The first is that Peter himself, that guy, is the rock on which Jesus will build the church. That, I, I grew up Catholic, I'm Italian-Irish, so I'm genetically Catholic, but we were also practicing in my, in my days growing up. Uh, and that's what we believed, right? That Peter was the stone on which the church was built, and all of his successors, all of the papas, all the popes, could speak as the ones who were the, the foundation of the church. The rock was Peter. There's a, there's a few Protestant interpretations who will also make Peter the rock because he was the first to confess, but then they'll really kind of jump ship and say, but it's the confession. And that's, that's option two that we have, that Peter's confession is the rock. That's the majority of views among Protestants. That when Peter says, you are the Christ, that's the rock Jesus is talking about. You're Peter, and on this rock, the things you just said, that's what I'm going to build my church on. That, that's not a new view. I know I said it's the majority Protestant view, but it's an old view. Church fathers like Gregory of Nyssa believed that. John Chrysostom is quoted as saying, on this rock, that is, on the faith of his confession, he did not say upon Peter, for it was not upon man, but upon faith. Which makes sense. So this, this is a view that has been held in Christianity throughout times and now kind of is the, the main focus of Protestant views. Third one, Christ is the rock. Fewer evangelicals today, Protestants today, would hold this view. Here's the parsing out of this one. When Jesus says in the Greek, you are Peter, it's the Greek word for stone, a small stone. And it has a masculine pronoun. If you've studied romance languages, you know that things have gender to them. And it has nothing to do with femininity or masculinity. It's just the way the language is so they can talk about that. So, so stone, Peter, is masculine. And then he says, on this rock, a feminine noun, I'll build my church. So people say, okay, th this is something different. Now, there are issues with this, of course, because Jesus wasn't most likely speaking Greek. He was speaking Aramaic to his disciples and they didn't have that, but Matthew, as the writer, made sure he said it that way. It squares with some of the things that Jesus would say about himself. That he said, look, the disciples who build their house on a, on a rock, that's going to last. He'll say to his adversaries, the Pharisees in Matthew 21, that, that he's the capstone. He's the one that holds everything together, that he is the rock. St. Augustine, who seems to be the one Catholic theologian that Protestants most love, right? They, they sort of avoid everything before the Reformation, occasionally sneak back, high-five Augustine, come back on the other side and say, yay. Augustine, when he was young, said, it's Peter. When he was older, he wrote a work called Retractions. And boy, do I desire to be old enough to get to publish a work like that where I can say, here's all the stupid things I said that I wish I didn't say and could take back. What, what a better solution than cancel culture, by the way, is for people to be able to retract and grow and have iterations of growth in their life. But, but he'll say, I was wrong. When I said to the Donatists who he was against um, that Peter is the rock, and we, we have that, and we have the Pope, he said, I, I was wrong. The rock has to be Christ because it's all built on Christ. Here for me is the most important question about deciding where you are on these. What did Peter hear? What did the guy who looked Jesus in the eye as his Lord was saying to him, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. What did he believe and how was that expressed later? He never will say, guys, I'm writing you this letter. Believe it because don't forget Jesus said, I'm the rock and I'm the one on whom the church. Never says that. So apparently that wasn't what was in his mind. 
In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8, he says this, As you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. He starts quoting the Hebrew Scriptures. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He very plainly sees that the rock, the stone, that everything is built on is not him. He's talking about Jesus. So I I tend to land, honestly, for me, on on that third one. There's no other foundation laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I think Jesus was saying, man, you're being a great rock right now, the kind of people who will be built up to, to worship and serve in the kingdom. Blessed are you. You've heard what God said, and you're following it. And on this rock, I'll build my church. Then he talks about keys, the keys of the kingdom and and what that means. A couple choices again. One interpretation is that Peter and his successors, the popes, the bishop of Rome, have the power to say, this is true, this is not true, and heaven must obey us. See, when Luther, the former Augustinian monk, figured this one out, he said, well, wait a minute. If you have that power and you're not using it to release everybody who's bound from the, from the punishment of hell, you are really bad, bad at being human. This is just sick of you. But I don't believe you have that power. But that, that would be the very Catholic view, that the Catholic Church holds the keys to salvation, and without the church, there's no salvation. It also allows the Pope, who speaks ex cathedra from, from his chair as the Bishop of Rome, anything he says in that position is true. So when the Feast of Immaculate Conception is celebrated, it's because the Pope said not just Mary was a virgin, but Mary's mother, Anne, immaculately had Mary so that Jesus' mother wasn't just a filthy human like the rest of us. And he said that's true. So then the Catholic Church says, well, that's true. There's another view. This would be that those who speak the gospel, those who are Christ's, now have the ability to open that life up for other people by the preaching of the gospel. There's a Protestant Reformation era work called the Heidelberg Catechism, and catechisms work to help train us in our faith. Uh, You'd be asked a question, and people would recite and eventually memorize the responses to help them learn these things, to teach them doctrine. And there's a question in there that says, how is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the gospel? And the answer is, by proclaiming and openly witnessing, according to the command of Christ to believers, one and all, that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, by proclaiming and witnessing to all unbelievers, and such as do not sincerely repent that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation abide on them so long as they are not converted. That's the expression of saying the keys is the preaching of the gospel. A thing you did not know to do, did not have the power to do, you now understand and can confidently, with the word of God backing it, offer that to people. There's a third view, a little more narrow, that says the keys were really only used twice, and it was to welcome all humanity into the gospel. When Peter on Pentecost opened the door for the Jews to say, this one is our Christ. And when he opened the door by preaching to Cornelius to say to the Gentiles, you may now come in, there will be those who say, well, that was it. 
the, the doors were open to the entire world. It's, it's a minority view, and it's expressed by John Stott, a scholar who's going to be with the Lord that I loved and, and pastor. He said, we have already watched Peter use the keys effectively, opening the kingdom to the Jews on the day of Pentecost and then to the Sanhedrin soon afterwards. Now he is to use them again to open the kingdom to the Gentiles by evangelizing and baptizing Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. So, so you've got those three views out there. I, I tend to lean that it's us who are speaking the words of life and opening in Jesus to others. One last thing we've got to focus on here and then we're, we're done. The secret. Why? Peter gives the A answer. Jesus tells him it's the A answer that God gave to you. And then he says, now shut up about it. Why? Well, in that day, people still had taken this word Messiah and filled it with everything they wanted. Some people confuse religion and nationalism. And there were those in that day who wanted to make Jesus the king who would expel Rome and would solve their political problems. And Jesus would have none of it. But in the Gospel of John, he says he would not entrust himself to men because he knew what was in their hearts. We were going to use that term Messiah and the power that came with it to get what we wanted. And Jesus said, nope, until, until his crucifixion and resurrection, then it's no longer secret. He says, go into all the world and while you are going, tell everyone. He was doing it to keep things clear, to, to kill the confusion and the static that was around his name. But that's not now. Now is another time. Now is the time when there's no call to protect the secret. Rather, we're being disobedient. If in a moment where we should speak, we say, I, I'm not sure I have the courage to name the name of Jesus. If in the moment when we should speak, we say, it might make me unpopular and cost me things to name the name of Jesus. See, the moment now, the command now is, you are not to keep this secret. You who are aware of what has been given to you in Christ and transformed and saved from death, hell, and the grave, you have those keys. And, and woe to us and shame on us if we say, it's not worth it to tell someone else who needs to find life because it may upset some people. It's not worth it because it may make me feel emotionally uncomfortable. Therefore, we stand in this moment not as those who are called to a secret, but those who are called to shout. Those who are called to live in such a wise way that we understand our world, that we can speak to men and women who have varying views of Jesus and say, who do you believe he is? But then when it's our turn, without shyness and without shame, say, he is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of the living God. Let's pray together. Gracious and good Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that you reveal, that you have called us to your Son. By the power of your Spirit, you have helped us to see who we are, that we are those who are selfish, sinful, separated, but Lord, you've told us in Christ we can know the Messiah, the anointed one, the one longed for and prayed for. Lord, you've told us it's not just about our economic benefit, our, our national end, but the salvation of your creation and the renewal of all things. Father, it's my prayer that you would help us to deeply answer the questions again from what you have told us, that where we don't know, we would go to the Bible and seek your revelation by the power of your spirit again. 
and that you would send us into this world, Lord, not caring deeply for what we might lose, but what others can gain in knowing our beloved Savior, Jesus, in whose name we now pray. Amen.